Hello, and welcome back to One Conversation, the podcast where we believe one conversation can change a life. So in today's episode, we are continuing on with our Domestic Violence Awareness Month topics with a really important conversation. We're going to be discussing post-relationship abuse and how to either leave or stay in a domestic violence relationship as safely as possible. So before we begin, listener discretion is absolutely advised today, as we're going to be covering not only types of abuse, but also some pretty heavy statistics on violence in the beginning of this as well. So please take care of yourself as needed. And this is going to be an extensive conversation. As difficult as it may be, it is so important to us that we put this information out there in hopes that it might help individuals navigate how to remain in or leave a violent relationship safely and more informed. So let's start with some of those statistics. First and foremost, we know it is not easy to just get up and leave an abusive relationship. It takes an average of seven attempts to successfully leave an abuser. I was actually just a few minutes ago doing a lunch presentation for Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and when we said that statistic of seven attempts to successfully leave, there was this collective like, oh, wow, in the audience. Yeah. (laughs) Because it's something that people don't really think that it takes that much. There are a lot of valid reasons why someone may stay in a domestic violence relationship, including personal reasons, safety reasons, as well as societal barriers. We'll discuss some of those reasons today, but if you want to know more, you can check out our episode, Should I Stay or Should I Go?, where we go through some of the many reasons victims stay. A big reason why some victims may stay in the relationship is because they fear for their safety if they do choose to leave, and statistics support this fear. We know that leaving is the most dangerous time in any abusive relationship. If there are firearms in the picture, this danger grows exponentially. Women who are in abusive relationships are five times more likely to be injured or killed if their abuser has a firearm. This is an upsetting thing to have to discuss, but unfortunately, this is a pervasive problem and why it's especially important that we talk about this and also provide information on how to leave safely. There's another statistic that came out recently, I think it was from the Department of Justice, and They did interviews with folks in prison who had murdered their spouses. And as they were interviewing them, they asked what the precipitating event was that led to the murder. And I think it was something like 70 to 80% of them said that their partner was either talking about leaving or did leave. And that was the reason that they ended up murdering their spouse. So this is a very real situation, is a very dangerous situation, and we know that the survivor is the expert in how to keep themselves safe in this relationship, even if it looks really dangerous from the outside looking in. So we don't want to cause widespread fear with this and these statistics, but it's really about empowering people out there to know that there are things you can do to help secure your safety and to make that decision to leave when you are ready. Because if you're in an abusive relationship, you are the expert of your life. Yes, absolutely. And this is about sharing for the sake of providing necessary resources to those who may need it. And not only is there a risk of gun violence, 
but survivors also may experience what we call post-relationship abuse after leaving as well. So what is post-relationship abuse and how can an abuser continue to maintain power and control if a survivor does leave? And we have talked about that time and time again. Power and control is the main motivation for why someone would abuse their partner. And there's a lot of tactics that an abuser may use to do this, right? To maintain that power and control even after the relationship is over. And by the way, we're going to be giving um, examples of post-relationship abuse from the Duluth model, their separation abuse wheel. If you've listened to other episodes, we have continually mentioned how we have wheels for everything. We have wheels (laughs) for domestic violence, tea dating violence, child abuse. We even have wheels for healthy relationships. I mean, there are great visual examples. Um, But something to point out, the Duluth model, which is kind of the gold standard for those visuals, it was created by studying heteronormative relationships where it's male perpetrated and female victimized dynamics. But we also know uh, that anyone, regardless of gender identity, expression, or sexual orientation, can experience this. So we're going to be sharing this through that inclusive lens, but we wanted to put that out there because we do have that post-separation abuse wheel linked below in the description if you want to take another look at it. Um, And if you did, you would notice, again, that it is through that heteronormative lens. But To dive in, because this wheel again shows all the different ways in which that kind of abuse after the relationship can be played out. So the first component of the wheel we're going to discuss is using harassment and intimidation. This can look like a lot of things, but some of the examples can look like destroying or breaking property of the victim or children if there's children present using children to violate any no-contact orders that may be put in place after the relationship has ended. Perhaps the abuser can make their presence known while knowingly staying outside the protection order boundaries. So perhaps they understand um, you know, how many feet away from the house they can come to without violating that order. Maybe they stay within that distance, right? But still with an eye view of the victim, kind of to have that omnipresent feeling, right? Or just remind the victim that they're still watching, they're still there, and kind of maintain that fear. They can also abuse pets as a way to harass and intimidate that victim, or even using third parties to harass, threaten, or coerce the victim. So maybe um, calling on friends or other family members to almost act as a mouthpiece for the abuser if they can't get in contact with the victim directly. The next part of this wheel is undermining their ability to parent. So this could look like disrupting the children's sleep or everyday schedules, which Lisa, I love that you gave me this part to talk about because you <laughs> knew that I had things to say about the parenting. Absolutely. And as soon as I love that disrupting the children's sleep is the first one listed here because, oh my goodness, would I... that would ruin a lot of things in my day and my life with someone purposefully disrupting my child's sleep schedules. Another part of undermining their ability to parent would be withholding information about the kid's therapeutic, social, emotional, or physical needs, contradicting the safe parents' rules for the kids. We sometimes can see this Uh, the term Disneyland dad. And again, this is very heteronormative, very stereotypical. 
Uh, I'm a huge Disney fan, so this is no hate on Disney either. That's just a term that is thrown around is a Disneyland dad where the mom is the one who sticks to the rules and has these guidelines, has these routines, and then the dad takes them to the toy store and they can eat whatever they want and they can sleep whenever they want and they do whatever they want. So it's a common term that we hear in uh, families who've separated. Demanding visitation schedules at expense of the kids. And co-parenting in this way or working against instead of with the other parent is a way to disrupt the parent-child relationship. Some abusers do not mind harming the kids if they know it harms the other parent. Mm -hmm. And I think we brought this up in our coercive control episode as well, is Mm -hmm. they're just using the kids as a game piece in the game that they are playing against their victim, even if it's at the cost of the kids. It's more important to them to maintain that power and control over their partner than it is to make sure that their kids are being raised in a a safe and healthy environment. So I think that says a lot about how pervasive these tactics can really be. Next up is discrediting them as a mother or as a parent. So this could be using their social status against them, whether that's sexual identity, immigration status, race, religion, education, income, any of those. Inundating systems with false allegations of bad parenting, cheating, using drugs, being crazy. Legal abuse is a very real part of this, as the abuser can create a gaslighting narrative that they lovingly want time with the kids. But really, this is an avenue to continually harass or be involved with the victim or survivor. So again, this is coercive control coming through here of just navigating the court system in a way that makes it seem like the mother or the other parent, the victim in this situation, is not fit to be a parent just based off of lies. Another tactic would be exploiting, oh, children need a father, to gain sympathy, again, navigating the court system in a manipulative way. Obviously, these people are great at manipulating. Mm -hmm. And isolating them from friends and family, practitioners, or other supporters. And I think a note on this, especially during the COVID times, I think we're recovering from this better now. But when all medical appointments were telehealth and you did it at home on your computer if someone was home and their abuser was there like they can't screen for domestic violence the person with the appointment can't be honest even if they did and so I think that contributed to a lot of the drop in rates of domestic violence that we saw especially early in the pandemic but now that things are getting back to normal and we're seeing more things happen in person. I think we're starting to level out on that and we're starting to really be able to contact those people and see the effects that the pandemic had. So moving along, we have withholding financial support. This can look like ruining the victim's credit. That way, you know, it's hard for them to obtain a loan, um, you know, for a new home or a vehicle, transportation for themselves, just really inhibiting them from getting back on their feet. 
This can also look like withholding child support. So maybe they did go to court and child support was awarded, but withholding that just to make it more difficult. Um, you know, and we talked a lot about in previous domestic violence episodes how financial abuse is so pervasive in domestic violence relationships because in, in this case, if an abuser was withholding the victim's money, right? Maybe um, taking money that they did earn or not allowing the victim to work, putting them on some sort of an allowance. Then obviously after they leave that relationship, maybe they don't um, have access to their own money. That's another tactic here is blocking access to money after separation. But regardless, that's going to create kind of the after effect of leaving just, just more difficult, right? If they're financially not as stable as they could have been. Maybe they're using court action to take their money or resources. And I mean, just litigation in the first place, right? Being taken to court, hiring a lawyer, um, any fines or fees associated with that. We, it could be at a really expensive process. So using that as a, another way um, to kind of take resources from them. Or even interfering with their ability to work after the relationship has ended. So maybe they're continually stalking their victim um, or causing issues at work, doing things like showing up unannounced, really doing anything to put that victim in a circumstance where maybe they are suspended from work due to all these occurrences or even get them fired from their job. So all of those things would fall under withholding financial support. The next part of the wheel is endangering children. So maybe neglecting the kids when they are in their custody, perhaps putting them in age inappropriate emotional or physical situations. And like Brie mentioned before, right? Some abusers, they do not mind harming the children or bringing harm to them if they know it does cause harm to the victim or even using violence in front of the kids. And next, um, kind of piggybacks off of that, but the next part of the wheel is disregarding the children. So maybe the abuser is ignoring school schedules, homework, projects, activities, uh, kind of disrupting their school, perhaps ridiculing their needs, wants, fears, or identities, forcing family members, new partners, or others to do the parenting work for them so they don't have to be so involved, treating the children as younger or older than they are. Um, and that parentification can be something that's really impactful for the kids, right? So if there perhaps is an older sibling of the children, uh, maybe that parent is relying on that older sibling to kind of take care of the others, right? Take on that child care role, which, yeah, for a lot of kids can be uh, a really big burden to carry and something that's absolutely not their responsibility, right? To parent those other children. And lastly, enforcing strict gender roles. So kind of dictating who they are based on their gender, maybe providing certain chores, housework, duties, just again, based on the gender of the children. Next, we have disrupting their relationship with the kids. So this could look like coercing them to ally with the abuser, degrading the safe parent in front of them, using kids as spies or to share information. Uh, P.S. I also saw on TikTok last night, which I'm just becoming the person who gets my news and fun tidbits from TikTok, finally hopping on that train. There was a woman who explained how to look up the voice recordings that are on an Alexa. 
She said that she actually caught her now ex-husband cheating on her by going through the voice recordings that are kept on their Alexa. I would never have thought that. Yes. And I I think we're going to talk about this a little bit later also about being safe with technology. Mm -hmm. But maybe I'll find the link to that and we can include that in our resources for this episode because she went through how to find it in the Amazon account if you do have an Alexa. And she said, you know, be careful because it can pick up the TV also. So don't like automatically assume that it's another person in your house if the TV was on. But if you have an Alexa in the house and you're now former abusive partner might still have access to it. Or maybe that former partner is knowing that the kid has access to it and is abusing that access. There's so many things that can go on with tech abuse. And you just have to be really careful with everything that you have. Yeah. Another tactic could be isolating the kids from them or them from their kids. So maybe using court systems to help do this. And we talked about that in the discrediting them as a parent part of the wheel. And the last part of the wheel is physical and sexual violence against them and or the kids. So that could be threatening to harm, kill, or kidnap the kids physically harming them, abusing the kids, either physically, sexually, or emotionally, threatening self-harm or suicide, forcing sex as a condition to keep the kids safe or allowing them to see the kids, exposing the children to pornography or violence. I think this is obviously a really serious one and it can seem or it can sound a little kind of far out there and extreme, But everything that we've talked about can build up to this. And if nothing else is working for this person to kind of grab at straws for their power and control agenda, it might lead to this. So that's why we have to talk about it, because people have experienced this, unfortunately. And it's so important for us to let people know that that could be something that happens. And very unfortunately, yeah, I mean, this this could be a reality, right? And the Duluth model actually, um, you know, they only have this information and put it out there in this infographic after studying such a wide variety of domestic violence cases. And so these are things that they came across and things that were very prevalent um, across a wide variety of victims who did leave the situation. And so, yeah, it's just um, a really disheartening, really unfortunate reality that these things, all of these things could happen, especially, you know, those, those awful things done um, against the kids. But another piece not actually included on the wheel we wanted to bring up is isolation. And we've talked continuously in other episodes how important isolation is within the abusive relationship. And I say important, um, really meaning like how much this can impact and kind of further the abuse. And it could be just as damaging in the aftermath of leaving. So if an abuser has worked to isolate the victim during the relationship, they're going to have fewer support systems or resources once they leave. Also, the abuser can work to isolate the victim after they have separated 
You know, they can work to defame their ex-partner. Maybe they're going to spread rumors among their family or friends, or even among coworkers, physicians, therapists, or the kids' teachers. And rumors that can impact them greatly, right? Maybe saying that, you know, oh, my ex, they lost it. Like, they, they're insane. That's why we broke up. Maybe saying things like, you know, they don't really take care of the kids. I'm the one that does all that. They've been neglecting the children or they just really don't have any interest in the kids. Maybe they've accused them um, or, you know, spread rumors about them cheating or infidelity. And this is all really to besmirch them or ruin their reputation. So if someone's experiencing some or all of these tactics after leaving the relationship, it kind of becomes very easy to see how the abuser is still having control and power over the victim and, and doing a lot of damage even after they've separated. And this is a big reason why some victims stay. Because if someone knows their abuser is capable of these things, or maybe they've even threatened them with some of these outcomes, then a victim may decide that, you know, staying is safer, especially if there are kids involved that, like Brie mentioned before, can kind of be used as like game pieces, right? In this desperate last attempt to maintain that power and control. So let's switch gears a little bit. First off, here's some things to keep in mind. You may be on the fence thinking that the abuser can change. You can help them change, or maybe they even apologize, saying it would never happen again and that they would seek batterers counseling. Understand that change isn't a quick or easy process for an abuser, even with counseling or any batterers intervention program. So there may still be several moments of abuse along that path of them changing, if that happens, which it's not impossible, but it is a very difficult thing to do. Some signs your abusive partner isn't actually changing that you can examine for yourself are the abuser denies, minimizes, or blames you for the abuse. They pressure you to go to counseling or demand another chance. They say they can't change unless you stay to support them. They pressure you to make decisions about the relationship. They try to get sympathy from you, the kids, family, and friends. So I know as, I'll just say it generally, as women, sometimes we get into relationships and we want to be the fixers and we think that <laughs> this person just needs our love and our attention. I know that Leslie Morgan Steiner in her famous TED Talk talks about that, that he was just a man who needed her love, uh, the man who ended up putting a gun to her head however many months later. But this is where we can look to see, okay, are we seeing signs of change? Are we seeing signs that this person can do better or are we seeing patterns that are just wrapping us as the victim into this even farther and even deeper into the abuse? So really important to look at. Yeah, I mean, honestly, because, you know, it it could be really easy for someone, especially who has the abusive tendencies to be extremely manipulative Right. And especially if you are one of those people, which I will say, I mean, that was me for the longest time. Something I still work on is being like that fixer, right? Like, oh, I can change them. I can make it better. You know, so especially if you have that kind of tendency already, then yeah, it's, it's so, it's so much easier, right? For the abuser to kind of manipulate you in that way and make you feel like 
you do have to stay or things can get better. But that's really important, Brie. You know, like we mentioned, um, just looking for the actual steps to change. Are there action steps or are you just hearing these things over and over and not seeing anything being done or any kind of form of change being put in place? So perhaps you recognize that the relationship you're in is unhealthy or abusive, but you don't feel ready to leave. That is absolutely your decision. There is no shame from us in the decisions that you make for yourself. It's entirely up to you and when you feel that it's best to do so, to leave that situation. As much as we know that you, your children, your pets absolutely deserve safety, peace, love, respect in your relationship, we know it's just always not that easy to get up and go, right? So with that being said, we're going to discuss maintaining your safety within the relationship as well as after someone has left in a little bit here. Um, but for staying in the relationship safely, here are some things to keep in mind. First and foremost, safety planning. And we did a whole episode on safety planning. So we really encourage you to check it out to get the full picture, what that looks like. Um, we have a few of the episodes we've already talked about. Uh, link down below or just mentioned down below so it's easier to go back, find them, listen to them. But here are a few tips we're going to share about safety planning. First is knowing your partner's red flags for abuse and maybe having a plan or a reason to leave if things start to escalate. So maybe you understand that abuse kind of readily occurs if your partner is intoxicated. Maybe you already kind of have set things. Maybe you started to, um, you know, go out and take a pottery class or you go to a book club or, you know, certain nights of the week you go to the grocery store. And maybe when you're at home, you know, the perpetrator, they're beginning to drink and you understand, okay, things can kind of escalate. So yeah, maybe that's your time to say, oh, you know, I, I got to go to that class or I am going to pick up this person from work, whatever it is, right? Something already kind of pre-planned. Um, it's not going to raise any alarm or, you know, kind of give the abuser any ideas that you're trying to leave, but just kind of an escape plan for yourself, right? So you can get yourself just out of that situation. Maybe identifying safe areas of the house where you can go if things escalate and, you know, try to avoid rooms that don't have exits or especially rooms that may have weapons, right? So maybe there's a gun cabinet in the home, or maybe just, you know, avoiding places like the kitchen where there's sharp objects and knives present, uh, and trying to identify safe rooms that maybe have a phone or just an exit point if you do have to leave quickly. Creating a code word, especially if you do have children, right? A code word that they should go to their rooms or um, maybe leave the home, go to a neighbor's house, or even code words with neighbors, friends, or family uh, that you can notify them that it's time to call the police, right? If things are starting to get dangerous or out of control. And the last part of safety planning is preparing for a quick exit, right? So if you do need to leave quickly um, and thinking about the necessary items that we have to take with us and maybe having those things prepared. So again, uh, our other episode on safety planning details, you know, how to safely keep um, kind of a go bag, right? And the things that you should consider when you are planning that out as well. Our next tip is protecting your privacy. 
Since abusers often monitor their victims digitally through their phone or computer, sometimes that is known to the victim and sometimes it is done without their knowledge. It is important to protect yourself, especially if you are searching for resources or calling support systems that can assist you in leaving. It's important to cover your tracks to help maintain safety. So some tips on that. Call for resources or support on a neighbor's, a friend's, or even a burner phone. Some smartphones have apps where abusers can listen into phone calls or they can monitor your calls or internet searches. So try to do that on someone else's phone if you can. Also, phone bills can reflect the numbers for calls made from the phone. So even if you're already gone, but you called someone for support after you left, the abuser can use these numbers to potentially track where you went. The next tip is change usernames and passwords. Even if you don't think your abuser has access, change them anyway since they could have guessed them or used spyware or key logging to gain access. This could divulge information on your whereabouts and put your safety at risk. The new iPhone operating system, the iOS 16, um, I ended up finally downloading it. It's been around for a couple months at the time that we're recording this. One of the new features that it came out with was that you can not only unsend a text message to someone who al already has the iOS 16 also, but you can also edit that text within 15 minutes and there's no record of what the text used to say before that. Interesting. Yes. So Apple got a lot of feedback from us as domestic violence providers saying, um, what? There's going to be no record of this. Uh, and so where I'm going with this is Apple actually gave us a little bit of a, a consolation on that is there's now a feature called safety check. And so this is designed to aid domestic violence victims. And so it's on iOS 16. It's designed to help someone quickly cut ties with a potential abuser. Safety Check does this by helping a person quickly see with whom they're automatically sharing sensitive info with, like their location or photos. But in an emergency, it also lets a person simply and quickly disable access and information sharing to every device other than the one in their hands. Good on Apple. Apple, I guess we're, I guess we're not that mad at you, Apple, because you gave us that, but we still don't like the fact that our survivors now have to screenshot every time they get a text because it may disappear with no record. So kind of a win and a loss there. <laughs> <laughs> but good on them for even considering, right, part of that. Um, a lot of those things are made just through the lens of like, yeah, no one's in this kind of a place, right? So it's just interesting that they did take that feedback and, and tried to navigate, right, and change some of those systems. So yeah, we're going to get that with technology. There's going to be some wins and some losses, you know, with all the tracking that I know, Lisa, you're about to talk about. Um, there's things that they were trying to increase some of the tracking devices and they got some pushback from us on that. But at the same time, the ones that are already out there already exist. So it's always a battle of us speaking up for survivors, but we will do it until we don't have to anymore, until there's no domestic violence. We will keep speaking up. 
Some domestic violence programs do offer free cell phones to people in domestic violence situations. So if you are calling for those resources, go ahead and check with them if that's something that you can get as a resource from them specifically. I believe there's a lot of agencies out there that probably provide that. So, you know, it's always worth um, asking, making that call, right? And seeing if that's something that you can get as a resource. But your abuser may be tracking your location as well, right? Kind of like we were just talking about. Um, So a car's GPS system may be able to let your abuser know where you've been going. So that's a big one, right? And that's something I didn't really think about until I was kind of doing more research. Um, You know, there's other forms of tracking that were kind of more they were easily understood. Um, but even being able to go back and just kind of see where the car has been, seeing what kind of um, addresses have been plugged in or what trips have been taken. I mean, yeah, that's that's definitely something to really think about if you're in a relationship where you believe your abuser may be tracking you. Um, that's a system that you may want to check into. Or they may even be hiding tracking devices. We mentioned this in in a few past episodes, but things like Apple AirTags, which are so small, right? It's so convenient for someone to put an Apple AirTag in a place like your car, uh, maybe in the center console or under the seat so you won't really see it or notice it. Or maybe they could put one in a purse, right, to know your location. So If possible, just given all these different ways that someone can track you, maybe taking public transportation or getting a ride from family or friends can avoid them figuring out maybe that you're seeking help or just where you're going in general. Things like nanny cams, security cams, or even baby monitors can be used to eavesdrop or keep tabs on you at home, maybe listen in to phone calls or conversations or just watching what you're doing. So it's really important to keep this in mind if you're going to be calling for resources or assistance or anything like that. So maybe you want to make these calls when you're out of the house. If it's common for you to run errands, perhaps making these calls from a secured phone, right? Like we mentioned before, a burner phone, um, another phone given to you by a domestic violence agency or even a friend or family member's phone while you're out of the house doing your errands can help you maintain safety. Also, if you know of cameras within the home, and let's say you're at the point where you are preparing to leave, this is something that you have decided, um, you know, we don't want to tamper with these cameras at all until you're actually leaving, right? Because we wouldn't want you to raise alarm or suspicion with your partner because there's also that fear of possible retaliation, right? And so that's something also to keep in mind is just kind of maintaining those and, and doing your best to work around them. The next tip we have is reaching out to a domestic violence resource center or a shelter because we know that a trained advocate can really help you navigate these steps, right? And really help you find the safest path for either leaving or just maintaining your safety while you're still there. So some services that a domestic violence agency can provide can look like legal help, Uh, counseling, support groups, or services for your children, employment programs, health-related services, educational opportunities, financial assistance, or shelter. So there's a lot that agencies can do. You can call your local agency and find out more, or even maybe browse their website and see what kind of services that they provide. And in terms of shelters, I mean, shelters can provide 
confidential and secure respite for you, uh, your family, and sometimes even your pets, just depending on the shelter and what they allow. And of course, an advocate can help you with that too. But while in a shelter, you and your family's needs will be taken care of, and you can just simply focus on keeping yourself safe and next steps for your independence. And I will say at our agency at Live Violence Free, if you are not one of the specific advocates that works with the shelter program, um, like we don't know where it is. I know I don't know where our shelter is. Absolutely not. So it's something that is kept, I mean, very secure. And it's it's pretty difficult, if not impossible, for an abuser to really find out a shelter location, um, unless they have maybe some kind of tracking still on you or something like that. But again, an advocate can go over those things with you and make sure that your abuser can't gain access. So that could be an option, um, especially if someone is really in fear for their safety is seeking a shelter, right? And taking that time to just focus on themselves um, and just rebuilding after that relationship. Yeah, it's a great point about how secure the shelter is. Some people might assume, oh, law enforcement knows where it is. Nope. We take uh, great care to make sure that that is not publicly known to any public or private agency other than us and the people who need to know. Also, anytime anyone staying in our safe house needs to take a taxi or anything like that, we actually have them weather depending, right? But when the weather is okay, we actually have them pick up from a spot like two blocks away in any direction so that it still cannot be traced back to that location. So we do take great care for that. And here's some more tips for being safe after leaving. Uh, Keep your new location a secret. Some tips that can help with that is get a prepaid mobile or burner phone or an unlisted landline. Use a post office box rather than your home address. In the U.S., you can apply to your state's address confidentiality program, which is a service that confidentially forwards your mail to your home. Cancel your old bank accounts and credit cards, especially if you shared them with your abuser. When you open new accounts, be sure to use a different bank. If you're remaining in the same area, switch up your routine by changing routes to your work or avoiding places where your abuser may think to locate you. So as we talk about these things that can keep you safe, we want to make sure that it's not being said in a way that sounds anything close to victim blaming. Uh, You know, we're telling you, you do this, you do this, you do this. And sometimes it's like, well, it's the abuser's fault. What are they doing? And we do want to make sure that the blame is placed on the abuser. But at the same time, we want to make sure these tips for safety are in place and that you're thinking about these things. Um, We would ideally love for the victim to not have to do any of this, but it's just kind of what has to be done to keep you safe. Mm -hmm. Also, keeping a secure phone on you to call 911 is a good idea in case you see your abuser. Consider getting a restraining or protective order. Keep in mind an abuser may ignore this and it may be difficult for police to enforce it. That is sadly a reality that we want to bring up, but it, it can help if the abuser does follow it. And hopefully if they break it, that will be carried out in court that there's been a violation of that. So make sure to report those violations. 
And lastly, take steps to heal and move on. Counseling, therapy, or support groups may help you process what happened and learn how to build new healthy relationships. Take time to get to know yourself again and understand your value and your worth. Tap into your support systems when needed and don't be afraid to ask for help if needed. We know that it's not ideal or even fair to have to change up your routine or jump all these hoops to keep yourself safe. Like we said, not trying to come off as victim blaming here at all, of course. But we wanted to put all these considerations out there so any survivors can take the steps they can to maintain the safety of themselves and their loved ones. And I just want to share here, it's kind of ironic that we are doing this episode because I was just talking with my therapist last week about I had a trigger that came up and it was actually a trigger from the time when I left my abusive relationship and so we were working it out and we did some EMDR I think we've talked about EMDR on this podcast but it's a way that your body can sort the trauma um not something I'll go into explaining fully right now. But anyway, as we were going through it, she told me, you know, it really sounds like, yes, you obviously experienced abuse in the relationship, but it feels like most of the trauma that you still carry came after you left the relationship Mm. and the way that you had to form your life in a way that hid from him and everything that you had to do. And so that made me realize a lot because even though I left my abusive relationship eight years ago, the fact that I had that trigger and it brought me back into, you know, I had the PTSD symptoms of being in that situation again. Right. And it had to deal with after I had left the relationship. So everything that we're talking about, you know, I didn't have any children at the time, but some of these tactics that we were talking about, I did, I did experience and even going to therapy for going on four years and working in this field, there's still parts of actually leaving that really affect me and bring that PTSD back. So just wanted to make that real for all of our listeners that this doesn't just happen to those people over there. It It is real and it happens to anyone. Yeah. And, you know, I really just appreciate you for being vulnerable and bringing that up because, you know, that is, it's something that is common, right? And it does happen. And That's especially why I'm so happy as hard as this conversation and many parts of it, you know, as hard as it was to talk about a lot of this stuff. um, It's just a very unfortunate reality. It's something that people go through and, you know, we, we wanted to be able to talk about this, provide some information, right? Provide empowerment and support for individuals out there who may be facing this. And so with all of that, I mean, I know we went through a lot today. We covered a lot of different bases. Um, I think it's a good time to kind of do a little bit of self-care. What we're going to do today, um, we're not necessarily going to do a meditation, but I wanted to share something out that I thought could be a really great resource for someone who maybe is remaining in a relationship um, that is violent or unhealthy, or maybe they have left, maybe like Brianna was just mentioning, right? Some of the after effects, either post-separation abuse, or just kind of those lingering effects from being in that relationship. But I'm going to be sharing out a safety statement. 
And this is something you can practice. We also did mention this in another episode. Our lovely therapist came in. That is the same episode that we chatted a little bit about EMDR and some other um, great forms of therapy for trauma. I'm going to have that listed below as well if anyone's interested wants to check that out. So for this safety statement, this could be something that is utilized, you know, let's say if you are experiencing a trigger, right? Maybe, yeah, I'm in a safe place right now, but I'm having these feelings come up and it's starting to cause me to panic a little bit or just kind of, um, you know, I'm, I'm outside of myself and I'm back in that kind of fear, that survival mode, right? This is a way that perhaps it can bring you back just into the present. How this safety statement works is you repeat the following. My name is, of course, your name here. Today is, you include the date, the year. I am, and so for this part, you could say I am in my bedroom. I am at the park, kind of just stating your location. And lastly, just saying and I am safe. Okay. So me right now using the safety statement can sound like my name is Lisa. Today is October 28th, 2022. I am in my room and I am safe. And this may not seem like a lot, but in reality, um, if we start to get kind of lost in what I call, and this is for myself, I don't believe this is any kind of a, um, like a diagnostic term, anything like that. But there are times where I get caught up in what I call a trauma loop, where maybe I have a trigger. If I'm in that trauma loop, if my mind kind of starts spinning, right, and I'm thinking about that past trauma, and I'm suddenly revisiting it, and I'm feeling it, and I'm there experiencing it all over again, Although this safety statement doesn't seem like this is something extremely powerful, it, it really can be, right? Because sometimes we just need to remind ourselves if we are safe in this moment, where we are, what the date is, maybe what the time is, and the fact that I'm safe. It's something I encourage you to try out if you do get triggered. So I thought it was a great thing to share, especially for today's conversation. And I encourage you all to try it. So if you want to try that right now, my name is, today is, I am, and I am safe. So I hope that's um, a useful tool for the toolkit, right, of overcoming trauma and things like that. But on that note, we're going to go ahead and kind of close out here uh, just with some last thoughts before we leave today's conversation. And some last thoughts for me are going to be that if you've ever been in an abusive relationship or if you're in one currently, just please know it is absolutely not your fault. You are not alone. If you have attempted to leave the relationship and maybe come back to it, maybe a few times, just know that that's extremely common. Again, like that statistic in the beginning, it takes an average of seven times to successfully leave a violent or abusive relationship. So I just wanted to put that out there, right? Like you deserve love and respect and yeah, you're not alone. There's a lot of agencies out there that be more than willing to help you navigate whatever you want to do in that situation, whether it's stay in the relationship. And of course they're going to do that without shame, right? Agencies are really there 
to empower you, to give you tools, to give you resources, and start giving your power back by letting you make the best decision for you. My last thought for today is a reminder that not everybody in an abusive relationship even identifies that they are in an abusive relationship. I know personally for me, I didn't identify as a victim until after I got out of the relationship. And maybe that's what really contributed to the trauma of leaving the relationship. I just wanted to throw that reminder in there because we can see this happening from the outside in, but you really don't know what that person is going through. And then as they leave the relationship, now there's all these other things that they have to worry about and it can feel kind of perpetual. Like the relationship is over. You can put that in a little box, but then this process of living your life after abuse feels like it's just the rest of your life. You have this to deal with, but with therapy and with support and with reminders that you are safe and with building yourself up to the person that you've always wanted to be, that is how you really recover from this. That's how you move on. And that's how you maintain hope when you leave a relationship. Yes, I'm so appreciative that we end on those notes, right, and just share that out. Um, But I just want to say a big thank you to our listeners out there that decided to be a part of this conversation today. Just take in this information, again, as difficult as a lot of it may have been. Being in the role of preventionists, we know that education, it's, it's really one of the the biggest components for how we can maybe be on the road to ending some of these issues, right? Uh, Just the awareness in and of itself, even if we're not in an abusive relationship, I mean, a lot of this information can greatly help someone else, right? That maybe we love and care about that are going through these things. So again, just a big thank you to our listeners out there, and we hope you will join us for our next conversation.